Chapter Seven of the Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Holy War. Abdel Rahman III's principle of government consisted in retaining the sovereign power entirely in his own hands and administering the kingdom by officers who owed their elevation wholly to his favor. Above all, he took care to leave no power in the hands of the old Arab aristocracy who had so ill-served previous rulers. The men he appoints to high places were parvenus, people of mean birth, who were the more attached to their master because they knew that but for him they would be trampled upon by old Arab families. The force he employed to sustain the central power was a large standing army, at the head of which stood his select bodyguards of Slavs or purchased foreigners. They were originally composed chiefly of men of Slavonian nationality, but came by degrees to include Franks, Galicians, Lombards, and all sorts of people who were brought to Spain by Greek and Venetian traders and sold while still children to the Sultan to be educated as Muslims. Many of them were highly cultivated men and naturally attached to their master. They resembled in many respects the core of Mamluks which Saladin's successor introduced into Egypt as a bodyguard, and which subsequently attained such renown as sultans of Egypt and Syria. Like that body of purchased Turkish and Circassian slaves, they had their own slaves under them, were granted estates by the sultan, and formed a sort of feudal retainers, prepared to serve their lord at the head of their own followers whenever he might call upon them. Like the Egyptian Mamluks, too, they came after a while to such a pitch of influence that they took advantage of the decay of the central power, which followed upon the death of Abdelrahman III and his successor, to found independent dynasties for themselves and thus contribute to the final overthrow of the Muslim domination in Spain. With the aid of his Slavs, the sultans not only banished brigandage and rebellion from Spain, but waged war with the Christians of the north with brilliant success. The Mohammedan realm was menaced by more dangers than those of internal anarchy. It was pressed between two threatening and warlike kingdoms, each of which required to be kept in watchful check. To the south, the newly founded empire of the Fatimite caliphs in North Africa was a standing menace. It was natural that the rulers of the Barbary coast should remember that the Arabs before them had used Africa as a stepping stone to Spain. The traditional policy of the African dynasty was to compass, if possible, the annexation of the fair provinces of Andalusia. It was only by skillfully working upon the sectarian schisms and consequent insurrections which divided the Berbers of Africa that the Sultan succeeded in keeping the Fatimites at distance. He did succeed, however, so well that at one time a great part of the Barbary coast paid homage to the ruler of Spain, who also obtained possession of the important fortress of Ceuta. A great part of the Spanish revenue was devoted to building a magnificent fleet, with which Abderrahman disputed with the Fatimites the commands of the Mediterranean. On the opposite side, on the north, the Muslim power had to deal with even more threatening enemy. 
The Christians of the Astrias had sprung from very small beginning, but they were now increasing in strength, and they had the stimulating thought spur them on that they were reconquering their own land. When first they had felt the shock of the Muslim invasion, their rout had been utter and complete. They had fled to the mountains of the Astrias, where their trifling numbers and the inaccessibility of their situation gave them safety from the Mohammedan attack. Pelagius, the old Pelayo of the ballad, had but thirty men and ten women with him in the cave of Kobadonga, which became the refuge of the Koti Christians, and the Arabs did not think it worthwhile to hunt down the little remnant of the refugees. Here, in the recesses of the cave, which was approached through a long and narrow mountain pass and entered by a ladder of ninety steps, a handful of men might have set an army at defiance. The Arab historians thus contemptuously describes the origin of Christian kingdom. During Anbasa's administration, a despicable barbarian, whose name was Pelayo, rose in the land of Galicia, and having reproached his countrymen for their ignominious dependence and their cowardly flight, began to stir them up to avenge their past injuries and to expel the Muslims from the land of their fathers. From that moment, the Christians of Andalus began to resist the attacks of the Muslims on such districts as had remained in their possession, and to defend their wives and daughters. The commencement of the rebellion happened thus. There remained no city, town, or village in Galicia, but what was in the hand of the Muslims, with the exception of steep mountain, on which this Pelayo took refuge with a handful of men. There his followers went on dying through hunger, until he saw their numbers reduced to about thirty men and ten women, having no other food for support than the honey which they gathered in the crevices of rock which they themselves inhabited like so many bees. However, Pelayo and his men fortified themselves by degrees in the passes of the mountain, until the Muslims were made acquainted with their preparations. But, perceiving how few they were, they heeded not the advice conveyed to them, and allowed them to gather strength, saying, What are thirty barbarians perched up on a rock? They must inevitably die. Would to God, add another historian, would to God that the Muslims had then extinguished at once the sparks of fire which was destined to consume the whole dominion of Islam in those parts. The little band of refugees was strengthened from time to time by fresh accessions, and by degrees waxing more confident, came forth from their stronghold and began to harass the Berbers who formed the frontier settlers. The Moors were at length compelled to seek out the intrepid raiders in their cavern, but the result was discouraging. They were driven back pell-mell with great loss. In 751, Alfonso of Cantabria, where the Muslims had never penetrated, having married the daughter of Pelayo and thus united the Christian forces, roused the northern provinces against the Moors, and joined by the Galicians of the west, began a series of brilliant campaigns by which the enemy was driven step by step further south. One after the other, the cities of Braga, Porto, Astorga, Leon, Zamora, Ledesma, Salamanca, Saldana, Segovia, Avila, Osma, 
Miranda were recovered from the Moslems, and the Christian frontier was now pushed as far as the Great Sierra and Coimbra, Korea, Talavera, Toledo, Guadalajara, Tudela, and Pamplona became the Moslem border fortresses. Alfonso had, in fact, recovered the provinces of Old Castile, Leon, Asturias, and Galicia, but the scanty band of Christians had neither money nor serfs wherewith to build fortifications and cultivate the fields over so immense an area. They contented themselves with leaving the conquered country as a debatable land between them and the Moors, and retired to the district bordering the Bay of Biscay, until such time as their numbers should justify the occupation of wider area. In the ninth century they were in a position to advance upon the territory they had already in part recovered from the Moors. They spread over Leon and built the fortress of Zamora, San Esteban de Gormas, Osma, and Simancas to overawe the enemy. The debatable land was now much narrower, and the hostile forces were almost in contact at various places along the frontier. At the beginning of the 10th century, the Moors of the borders made a strenuous effort to regain their lost dominions, but the Christians, aided by the men of Toledo and by Sancho, king of Navarre, who had become the bulwark of Christianity in the north, defeated them severely and began to harry the country over the border. The forays of the Christians were a terrible cause to their victims. They were rude, unlettered people, and few of them could even read. Their manners were on par with their education, and their fanaticism and cruelty were what might be expected from such uncouth barbarians. Seldom did the soldiery of the Leon give quarter to a defenseless foe, and we may look in vain for the fine chivalry and toleration of the Arabs where the latter spared nobly, the rough robbers of Leon and Castile massacred whole garrisons, cities full of inhabitants, and those whom they did not slaughter, they made slaves. Abdel Rahman III had hardly been seated two years on the throne when Ordoño II of Leon carried the devastating foray to the walls of Merida, and so affrighted were the people of Badajoz that they hastened to conciliate him with blackmail. These cities are not very far from Cordova. Only the lofty heights of the Sierra Morena separated the capital of Omeyad from the companies of Ordoño. The situation was fraught with danger. The young sultan, had he been a coward, might have excused himself from instant action on the plea that the Merida had not yet recognized his authority, and that it was not his affair if the Christians harried rebellious provinces. This, however, was not Abdel Rahman's policy or temper. He collected his troops and sent an expedition to the north, which made a successful raid into Christian territories, and the following year, 917, he ordered a second attack. This was defeated with heavy loss by Ordoño before the walls of San Esteban de Gormas, and the brave Arab general, seeing that the fight was lost, threw himself among the enemy and died sword in hand. The king of Leon had the pitiful cowardice to nail the head of this gallant soldier to the gate of the fortress, side by side with that of a pig. Encouraged by this success, the armies of Leon and Navarre ravaged the country about Tudela in the following year, 
but not with equal impunity, for they were twice beaten by the Cordoban troops. Seeing, however, that it took a great deal of defeat to taunt the Christians, Abderrahman resolved upon a stronger measure. In 920, he took command of the army himself, and by rapid marches and skillful strategy, surprised Osma and razed the fortress to the ground. Destroyed San Esteban, which he found deserted by its garrison, and then turned toward Navarre. Twice did he drive Sancho from the field, and when the forces of Navarre was reinforced by those of Leon, and the Christians had the best of the natural position, the Sultan delivered battle with them in the Val de Junqueras, Vale of Riz, and totally routed their combined array. Incensed by the obstinate defense of the borderers, the Muslims put the garrison of Muez to the sword, and it is unfortunately true that in some of these campaigns the Moors imitate the barbarity of their antagonists, especially when their armies included a considerable admixture of African troops, who were notoriously savage. Nothing could exceed the heroic determination of the defeated Christians. Barbarous they were, but they had the courage of men. Routed again and again, they ever rose with fresh heart from the disaster. The very year after the fatal battle in the Valley of Riz, Ordoño, who was the soul of the Christian resistance, led his men on another raid over the borders, and in 923, Sancho of Navarre, not to be behind-handed, recaptured some strong castles. Thus roused once more, the Sultan set out for the north, filled with a stern resolve, he sacked and burned all that came in his way. The cities emptied as he approached. So terrible was the dread he inspired, and he entered the deserted capital Pamplona, driving Sancho away in confusion as he approached. The cathedral and many of the houses of the capital were ruthlessly destroyed, and Navarre was at his feet. About the same time, Ordoño of Leon died, and the civil war which arose between his sons gave the sultan time to attend to other matters. On his return from this triumphant campaign, Abdel Rahman III assumed a new title. Hitherto, the rulers of Andalusia had contented themselves with such titles as Emir, Governor, Sultan, Dominator, Son of the Caliphs. Although they were the heirs of the Umayyad Caliphs and never recognized the Abbasid who had overturned them, the Andalusian sultans had not hitherto asserted their claim to the spiritual title. They had considered that the name of Caliph should not be held by those who had no authority over the holy cities of Islam, Mecca and Medina, and had been content to leave the Abbasids in undisputed possession of the name. Now, however, when it was known in Spain that the Abbasid caliphs no longer exercised any real authority outside the city of Baghdad and were little better than prisoners even there, in consequence of the growing independence of the various local dynasties. Abdel Rahman, in 929, assumed his title of caliph with the style of an nasir Lidin la the defender of the faith of God. The caliph had still thirty years more to reign when he adopted this new name, and they were filled chiefly with wise and cultivated administration at home, and with constant, even annual expeditions against the Christians, 
against whom he was indeed a defender of his religion. The civil war, which had for a time neutralized the power of the Leonese, had now given place to the authority of a worthy successor of the great Ordoño. Ramiro II succeeded in 931, and his warlike character soon asserted itself in resolute opposition to the caliph's armies. Not long afterwards, a formidable league was formed in the north between the Christians and the Arab governor of Zaragoza, and Abderrahman hastened to demolish the coalition. In 937, he reduced Zaragoza and, marching on Navarre, spread such terror around his way that the queen regent, Teuda, hastily paid him homage as a suzerain. Ramiro, however, was no party to this surrender. He gathered his men together and inflicted a tremendous defeat on the Muslims in 939 at Alhandega. 50,000 Moors fell upon the field. The caliph himself barely escaped with his life and found himself flying through the country with less than 50 horsemen. That disastrous year was long known in Andalusia as the year of Alhandega. Had the Christians pressed their advantage, a different history of Spain would perhaps have had to be written. But as usual, internecine jealousies among the Christian princes came to the help of the caliph, and while his foes quarreled among themselves, he repaired his disaster, recruited his army, and made ready for another campaign. The civil war which thus aided him had its origin in the revolt of Castile from the Leonese supremacy. The Count of Castile at this time was the celebrated Fernando González, of whom many minstrels have sung. He is one of the great Spanish heroes and was mated to a heroine. Twice did his wife rescue him from the prison into which he had been cast by his jealous neighbors of Navarre and Leon, and second time she did it by exchanging clothes with her husband and exposing herself to the fury of his jailers. The earlier occasion was before their marriage, when he was on his way to her father Garcia's court at Navarre to ask her hand in marriage, and the perfidious king laid hands upon him. A ballad tells the story of his release. They have carried afar into Navarre the great Count of Castile, and they have bound him sorely, they have bound him hand and heel, and there is joy and feasting because that lord is taken. King Garcia in his dungeon holds the doubtest lord in Spain. The poet goes on to tell how a Norman knight was riding through Navarre. For Christ, his hope he came to cope with the Moorish scimitar, and how he told Garcia's daughter of the captivity of Gonzales, and how grievous an injury it was the cause of Christian Spain. The Moors may well be joyful, but great should be our grief. For Spain has lost a guardian when Castile has lost a chief. The Moorish host is pouring like a river over the land. Curse on the Christian fetters that binds Gonzales' hand. And the Norman knights prayed the princess to set the prisoner free. The lady answered little, but at the murk of night, when all her maids are sleeping, she had risen and taken a flight. She had tempted the alcaide with her jewels and her gold, and unto her his prisoner that jailer false had sold. So the princess took the count out of his dungeon, 
and together they rode to Castile. At the time we have now reached, this is an old story, for Gonzalez had been married a many a year, and had determined that Castile should be a separate kingdom, no longer under suzerainty of Leon. For this he had again captured and imprisoned by Ramiro, and only released when it was apparent that the people of Castile would have no other lord but him, and would even pay their homage to a mere statue of their count, sooner than recognize the Leonese governor. Then the king let him out, after making swear to remain subject to the kingdom of Leon, and to give his daughter in marriage to Ordoño, the son of Ramiro. After this humiliation, Fernando González was less eager to fight beside the men of Leon against the Moors. He resolved to let the Leonese take their share of humiliation, but this was not to be in the days of the great Ramiro, for he won another victory over the Muslims near Talavera in 950, and the next year he died in undiminished glory. On his death, González began to play the part of kingmaker. He espoused the cause of Sancho against his brother, Ordoño III, and when Sancho succeeded the latter in 957, González turned about and expelled the new king from Leon and set up a wretched cripple, Ordoño IV, surnamed the Wicked in his stead. Sancho took refuge with his grandmother, Teuda, the Queen of Navarre, and they presently appealed to the Caliph of Cordoba to help them in their difficulties. Sancho was a martyr to corpulency. He could not even walk without being held up. He resolved to consult the eminent doctors of Cordoba, whose skill was famous all over the world. So Queen Teuda sent ambassadors to Abderrahman, who in return dispatched the great Jewish physician, Hasdai, to undertake the cure of Sancho the Fat. But he laid down certain conditions, among which was the surrender of a number of castles, and the personal appearance of Sancho and the Queen Teuda at Cordova. It was a hard thing to make a long journey to the Moorish court, and to feel that she was there as a sort of show, in witness to the Caliph's power. But the Queen went with her son, the King of Navarre, and her grandson, the exiled King of Leon. Abdel Rahman received them with all the gorgeous ceremony and all the native courtesy which belonged to him, and not only did Sancho speedily get rid of his fatness under the care of Hasday, but he returned to the north, supported by the armies of the Caliph, who restored him to the throne of Leon in 960. In the following year, the great Caliph died. He was 70 years old, and his reign, of nearly 50, had brought about such a change in the condition of Spain as the wildest imagination could hardly conjure up. When he came to the throne, a youth of twenty-one, his inheritance was the prey to a thousand brigand chiefs or local adventurers. The provinces had set up their own rulers. The many factions into which the population was divided had each and all defied the authority of the sultan, and anarchy and plunder devastated the land. On the south, the African dynasty of the Fatimites threatened to engulf Spain in their empire. On the north, the Christian princes seemed ready to descend upon their ancestral dominions and drive the Moors from the land. 
Out of this chaos and vision of imminent destruction, Abdel Rahman had evolved order and prosperity. Before half his reign was over, he had restored peace and good government throughout the length and breadth of the Muslim dominions. He had banished the authority of parties and established the absolute power of the Sultan over all classes of his subjects. In the second half, he maintained the dignity and might of his state against outside force, held the African despot at a distance, planted a garrison at Ceuta to withstand their advance, and contended with them on equal terms on the sea. And in the north, he curbed the growing power of the Christians of Leon, Castile, and Navarre, and so convinced them of his superiority that they even came to him to settle their differences and restore them to their rights. He had rescued Andalusia both from herself and from subjection by the foreigner, and he had not only saved her from destruction, he had made her great and happy. Never was Cordoba so rich and prosperous as under his rule. Never was Andalusia so well cultivated, so teeming with the gift of nature, brought to perfection by the skill and industry of men. Never was the state so triumphant over disorder, or the power of law more widely felt and respected. Ambassadors came to pay him court from the Emperor of Constantinople, from the kings of France, of Germany, of Italy. His power, wisdom, and opulence were byword over Europe and Africa, and had even reached to the furthest limits of the Muslim empire in Asia and this wonderful change had been wrought by one man with everything against him, the restoration of Andalusia from the hopeless depths of misery to the heights of power and prosperity had been effected by the intellect and will alone of the great caliph Abdel Rahman III. The Moorish historians describe this resolute man in colors that seem hardly consistent with his strong imperious policy, Nevertheless, they describe him faithfully as the mildest and most enlightened sovereign that ever ruled the country. His meekness, his generosity, his love of justice became proverbial. None of his ancestors ever surpassed him in courage in the field and zeal for religion. He was fond of science and the patron of the learned with whom he loved to converse. Many anecdotes are told of his strict justice and impartiality. The Arab historian tells us that after his death, a paper was found in the caliph's own handwriting, in which he had carefully noted those days in his long reign which had been free from all sorrow. They numbered only fourteen. O oh, men of understanding, wonder and observe how small a portion of unclouded happiness the world can give even to the most fortunate. End of chapter 7